welcome to Script to Screen, a screenwriting podcast. I'm your host, Mercedes K. Milner, and it's Black History Month! This month, I have immersed myself in so much content. It's insane. I watched 14 days of black romance films, read black film theory, finally finished Fargo season 4, y'all Chris Rock is so amazing, watch it, I beg you, and of course, read our script for today, Queen and Slim. But before we get into that, I want to give a little update on my writer life. I'm approaching mild freakout mode, people. Why? Because fellowship season is fast approaching. And even though I say every year that I'm definitely going to be less stressed the next year, it never happens. I'm just as stressed, if not more so. Why do I do this to myself? Maybe I love the feeling of aching despair and perpetual panic. More likely it's procrastination, but that doesn't sound as flowery and dramatic. I need help. If any of you are submitting this year, please reach out to me. You can send me an email at scriptoscreenpodcast at gmail.com. I want to know where you're submitting, how you're doing, and if you need a virtual hug. It's going to be okay. You're going to kill it. And you're an amazing writer trust. And now that that's off my chest, let's dive in. Queen and Slim is a 2019 American romantic road crime drama film directed by Melina Matsukas in her feature directorial debut and with a screenplay by Lena Waithe from a story by James Frey and Waithe. So, you know I do this every time, but this is exciting because we actually have some other credits too. To go over. Usually it's just written by, um, which is the combination of the two credits story by and screenplay by, but today we have a screenplay by and story by. So, for those of you that don't know, story by is a credit given to anyone who worked on a treatment or outline of the movie. And then screenplay by is for the writers who physically wrote drafts or scenes included in the final version of the movie. So I think that really speaks to the collaborative nature of this script, um, even though Waith did the screenplay, she did have some collaborative help along the way with James Frey. Here's the screenplay synopsis. Following a traffic stop altercation that leads to the self-defense shooting of a police officer, a couple must take to the road as outlaws to survive. As their story goes viral, they become a symbol for black repression across the nation. Now, before we get into the actual script, I wanted to touch on something. It's a bit of a debate that I have come across in my research for this script. I'm going to call this section Queen and Slim versus Bonnie and Clyde. Not as Bonnie and Clyde, but versus. Since the film's premiere, there has been an overwhelming perception of Queen and Slim as being any number of variations of Bonnie and Clyde, Black Bonnie and Clyde being at the center. Despite persistent denial by both Matsukas and Waith, the rumor continues to permeate the air around the film, and, to a degree, taint the image of it. So where is this coming from? For one thing, it's a matter of marketability to the masses. Though the film is much more than a reductionist idea of Black Bonnie and Clyde, that's a concept the average viewer gets. They can see it. Or at least they can see what they think it is. But if people are content to transform this narrative into one that completely parallels the story of Bonnie and Clyde, they're missing the point entirely. And they're also perpetuating a systemically racist idea of black people that is so problematic my eyes could pop out of my head with the amount of eye rolling I would have to do. Not convinced? 
don't worry, I wasn't planning on stopping there. I think we need to take a look at the actual story of Bonnie and Clyde to point out the blatant differences between them and Queen and Slim. From Wikipedia, the real Bonnie Elizabeth Parker and Clyde Champion Barrow were an American crime couple who traveled the central United States with their gang during the Great Depression. Known for their bank robberies, although they preferred to rob small stores or rural gas stations, they are believed to have murdered at least nine police officers and four civilians. They were killed in May 1934 during an ambush by police near Gibsland, Louisiana. Their exploits gained traction in the American media of the time because it was explicit and sexy, and that was largely unseen at the time. Bonnie's portrayal was particularly framed to give readers a thrill through juxtaposition of the feminine and masculine, a sweet-faced, all-American-looking woman with a cigar in her mouth and a gun in her hand. And that is not Queen and Slim. Above everything, I want to emphasize the element of choice here. Bonnie and Clyde were rightfully labeled criminals because they chose to embrace a life on the run, killing and stealing along the way. Queen and Slim were victims of a system that labeled them criminals from the moment they came into existence. They didn't choose a life of crime, and they didn't carry on killing and stealing for the thrill of it. In fact, aside from the self-defense shooting, they didn't kill anyone else at all. They had the audacity to defend themselves and fight for their own lives, and that forced them into the label of outlaw couple, and ultimately, Black Bonnie and Clyde. But, if you still can't shake that image, I want you to shift your perspective to accommodate it. If Bonnie and Clyde were black, maybe their narrative would parallel Queen and Slim's. They would be forced to face the same adversities as black people in America, and they would be subjected to discrimination at every turn until they were ultimately forced into a choice that was predetermined from the day they were born. Die or be killed. And with that, let's dive into the script, shall we? Interior Diner, Night One, Somewhere in Ohio. We're in the kind of place that feels like everyone should know your name, but they don't. Families frequent this spot when they've fallen on hard times. It's practically empty on this boring Thursday. Servers drop off hot plates while elderly people sip cheap coffee at the counter. Our focus is directed toward a black man and a black woman sitting in a small booth in the back. The man has a slender frame and a laid-back demeanor. He's not a fan of rocking the boat or ruffling feathers, but he ain't no punk either. For the purpose of this story, we'll call him Slim. The woman. She's regal as fuck. She's not an easy laugh, and she's always waiting for the other shoe to drop. For the purposes of this story, we'll call her Queen. Not unlike most first dates, there are long silences and a lot of forced small talk. The waitress quickly drops off their food and walks away without uttering a word. Queen examines the spread. Slim prays over his food. This is how he was raised. Queen sits awkwardly waiting for him to look up. As soon as he does, Didn't you ask for scrambled eggs? Yeah. She clocks the two sunny-side-up eggs on his plate. It's all good. No, it's not. It's just eggs. I have a thing about that. Eggs? 
Right away, we notice that the scene heading strays away from the traditional interior, exterior, location, and time of day model. We're being told that this is the first in a series of days, presumably the run of this pair's forced outlaw ship. At the surface level, Waze describes a lackluster diner, cheap in both food and hospitality, but she also creates an atmosphere that allows the reader to feel the environment, as well as visualize it. You know this place, or at least some place like it. You've been here before, and had the same annoying problem with your eggs. On the topic of character intros, notice how the emphasis here is on temperament rather than physical appearance. Waits described that she wanted to set up these characters so that they are accessible to any black viewer. The intent was to give the audience the ability to see themselves in these characters. Beyond the character intros, we get subtext in the scene to add depth. By the way Slim prays over his food, we can assume he's devout, and by the way Queen waits out the awkward silence, you could tell she's probably a non-believer. The completely different responses over the eggs gives each character a chance to show more of who they are. Slim is easygoing, takes life as it comes. Queen has high expectations of the way she should be treated, and a slight against her date translates into a slight against her by proxy. Even Sans love connection. On page one, I'm hooked, and need to see how these characters, with no chemistry at all, become the title characters of the film. On to Act 1, which I titled. It's cold out here. Where are we really? We know already that the characters are currently in a diner, later revealed as being black-owned. But beyond that, why should it matter that we are in some obscure section of Ohio? As Queen states, it's one of 31 states that still impose the death penalty. In a 2019 interview with O Magazine, Matsukas and Waith also explained the connection to the Underground Railroad in Cleveland, Ohio, being one of the last stops before escaped slaves would head north for Canada, and the 2014 shooting death of Tamir Rice by police officer Timothy Lohman in Cleveland. There is clear intention with this location choice. It has layers that root it deep within historical black struggle. When making your own location choices, try to dig deep into the history of the land your characters will track. Is there more to this than just, I like it, or it sounds cool? That is what will separate your script from everyone else's. Let's take a look at internal conflict. By page 5, we get a sense of the temperament-driven struggles our characters will have to face over the course of their journey. Slim describes that he doesn't have a lot of photos of himself, and he's fine with that. He doesn't need the world to know his name and face, he only needs his immediate loved ones to know about his existence. He's not out to be anyone's example, and his legacy is going to be intimate and self-contained, rather than on display. The conflict stems from the struggle he will have as someone that will ultimately become one of the faces of an entire movement. Queen can't understand his response, and we're given the following action line to show us. The idea of not having to prove oneself to the world is foreign to Queen. She is a character that has made a practice of proving herself and her worth as a black woman, as a lawyer, as an American citizen, and insistence on taking up space has given her the regal disposition we see. Her conflict might stem from the fact that regardless of what she's proven before tonight, she's always going to be the sum of this event, for better or for worse. Can she accept that? A quick note on the power of the action paragraph. 
Before we go any further, we need to take a moment to talk about these action paragraphs. Normally, you would use the section to tell the reader what they're seeing or what the characters are doing. But did you know that you can also use this section to create a vibe for the script and add your voice? Take the following paragraph, for example. Slim drives a white Honda Accord. Yeah, I don't give a fuck about cars. He tries to create a vibe by playing some neo-soul music, which is regular soul music with a hint of patchouli. Waith is taking liberties and adding her unique voice here. And guess what? It works! You don't have to sound like you're quoting Merriam-Webster when you're writing a script. No one is going to dock your grade for questionable grammar. Be authentic. That really makes the script shine. You can also use it to add context or explain motivation, like the line I shared about Queen's Conflict. Magic, right? From 2018 to 1953 real quick. A combined inciting incident and external conflict. Scene 7, pages 12 to 16. This scene introduces our turning point and what will become the outside pressure on our characters. What I found really interesting was the breakdown of the psyche of the officer when he makes the decision to pull out his gun. And just like that, a switch goes off in the police officer's head. He feels disrespected. His uniform isn't as intimidating as he thought it was. His superpowers are imaginary. So he goes from 2018 to 1953 real quick. He pulls out his gun and aims it at Slim. Though we may not know what the train of thought could have been during any other point where a horrifying instance like this has happened, this feels real and believable. We aren't meant to empathize with this character, but to catch a glimpse inside adds a level of damning clarity. Then what follows is the two-for-one deal of the inciting incident and external conflict that we've been waiting for. Listen in. Queen reaches in her pocket. Officer Reed aims his gun at her and fires off two shots. Boom, boom. The first shot misses her, but the second shot grazes her right thigh. She collapses to the ground and hits her head on the pavement. Slim screams for her. He tries to run toward her, but Officer Reed grabs him by the shoulders and slams him on the ground. Officer Reed and Slim roll around on the ground for a few seconds until Officer Reed finally pins Slim to the ground and points the gun in his face. Don't move. Officer Reed sees Queen trying to get up. He points his gun at her again. While the officer's attention is diverted, Slim knocks the firearm out of his hand. When the gun goes flying, Officer Reed reaches for it, but Slim gets it first. When Slim turns around to see Officer Reed lunging toward him, Slim fires the gun. Boom. He shoots Officer Reed in the neck, killing him instantly. And just like that, a bland first date becomes the beginning of the rest of your life on the run. The shots fired end their lives, their careers, their families, and the first act. A quick note on something even I didn't know you could do. Our opening credits don't happen until the end of the first act, which I think is really cool and kind of made my mind explode. As you know, everything in our script, evidently even the placement of the opening credits, needs to be there for a reason. You have to be able to back up everything because when you're questioned, and you will be questioned, you want to look like the total badass we both know that you are. So why are the credits here? Think of this first act as a prelude to the actual story. 
You want context and backstory? That's what you're getting here. There should be no confusion about the trajectory of this journey now that we've seen what we've seen. Prior to the inciting incident, these two characters aren't the title characters of the film. They're just a man and a woman on a bad first date. But after our inciting incident, they can no longer be who they were. They must become Queen and Slim to progress and ultimately to survive. So, when you see those opening credits, large and bold, you know that they are now stepping into the roles of the title characters. And that, my friends, is just damn good writing. Onward to Act 2, which I titled, You're Safe Here. So we're here in the aftermath of the inciting incident, and everything feels crazy. How can our characters possibly go on? It's not as simple as them being propelled forward by circumstance. They still have a choice. Do they turn around right now, return to the scene, and turn themselves in, ending the movie, or do they commit to the quest? Scene 9, pages 19 through 21. In this scene, Queen explains to Slim the extreme gravity of what they have just done, and lays out all of the possible things that could backfire with a clear surrender. They either get locked away forever and lost in the prison system, or they get killed on sight. What's the better option? By the end of the scene, it seems like fighting to see another day is what we're going for. And now that they've committed, the movie treks on. What makes up a super chunk of the second act is a little thing I like to call trailer bait. This is where you see all of the varying obstacles the characters will face, big, small, flashy, and sexy. These are some of the clips that will be pulled for the trailer that is going to make people want to watch this movie. For Queen and Slim, this section shows their trip through the states toward Florida and the various black communities across those states that they come into contact with. All the while, the manhunt is on and the footage of the shooting has gone viral. Their unforeseen legacy is taking shape, and a deep connection is being rooted between both Queen and Slim and the nation with this all-too-familiar struggle. One major change that I have to note here is Queen's hairstyle from script to screen. Queen's hairstyle in the script is described as being a Tina Turner wig styled to look like it's from the Ike and Tina days, and I am so glad that changed. I want to pause for a moment to explain a little bit about black hair so you can get a sense of why this is so important. There is this age-old stigma that surrounds the idea of good hair that every black person understands. This probably stems from the racist notion that good hair is tameable, ideally straight, thick, and long. Over time, this idea has shaped the way black people, and particularly black women, approach their hair. There is an insane range of ways to approach the good hair ideal. You'll see weaves, wigs, and perms. And if they choose to embrace their natural hair, you'll see afros, coils, curls, braids, and even the occasional blowout. But what constitutes good hair in the community ultimately comes down to length. As a black woman, I can tell you, it takes a lot of tender love and care to get my hair to grow and stay healthy. Long hair on a black female is a point of pride. That's why big chops are so emotional even though they can also be cathartic as well. It's sort of return to roots, literally and figuratively. And for those of you that might not know, a big chop is the act of cutting off most, if not all, of your hair to harness new growth that is healthy. 
typically after a long period of damage-inducing hairstyles like perms. When Uncle Earl tells Queen she has to shave her head, it's entirely understandable that it's a line she is not willing to cross. I mean, do you even know how long it takes this shit to grow? However, in the film version, despite her protest, Queen eventually caves and opts for a shorter do. Why is this so important? Because it's a form of freeing herself and letting go of who she was. As we know, she can't be that person ever again. This was a big step forward in her inner journey, and I don't think a Tina Turner wig has that same kind of weight. Sorry, Tina. My favorite scene from this section of the script is the second date. At this point, because of the journey our characters are on, there has been little to no romance in a film that suggests at least a little something-something between Queen and Slim. Not to say that they were an instant love connection in Act 1, but as they progress through the trials and tribulations of their second act, you can see them growing on each other in real time. So how does one reintroduce the romance to this type of narrative? I think a second date is a great idea. Scene 43-44, through 44, pages 60-64. through 64. We gain much more than butterflies here. Waith is using this scene to solidify the relationship between our characters, but also to give them a connection to a portion of the Black community that shows them empathy and support on their journey. They are not alone. People are standing behind them, and at least for this fleeting moment, they are safe. Okay, I gotta pause again. And do another quick note about a big change from script to screen. The iconic Queen and Slim image. Scene 57, page 80. This picture is a huge deal because it eventually becomes the immortalized image of Queen and Slim. The picture we know is one of the pair resting on the hood of the car. Slim leans against it, staring directly into the lens of the camera, strong but weathered. Queen sits on the hood and looks down at him with love, pride, and a question in her eyes. Perhaps, will we make it? However, the roles are almost reversed on the page. Here's what's described. Queen has her hand on the wheel, her toned arm on full display. Slim leans forward. He doesn't look at the camera. He looks at her as if she were his bride-to-be. Queen stares directly into the lens. The look in her eyes is a perfect combination of fear and pride. We linger on them long enough to realize they're no longer the people we met at the diner. Though I can't know exactly why this was changed, I can't rest with the idea that it was simply for aesthetic purposes. And neither should you. I'm not kidding when I say every detail of your script, an eventually fully realized film or series, needs to have intention beyond what you can gather at face value. You're deeper than that. And obviously, so are Waith and Matsukas. So, here's why I think the image we have is better than the image suggested. The image described puts Queen and Slim in the car, ready to set off on the road again. Placing them inside almost makes them seem caged, trapped within the confines of the journey. The angle, to me, also doesn't suggest the same kind of level-grounded chemistry that the pair has built up to this point. They don't feel like equals. Queen is in charge, and Slim sits behind her, looking at her amorously. It's cute, but we can do better, right? The image we have puts the couple outside, free, if only for a moment. And though Queen sits a little higher than Slim, we no longer get the sense that she'd be content to leave him behind. They're together now, 
truly together, and there is a bond between them growing that is unbreakable. Slim's gaze into the camera shows a man in the moment. He's uncertain of his future, but what allows him to rest against that car with ease now is knowing that Queen is beside him. What doesn't change across images? The fact that they're no longer the people we met at the diner. Moving right along to the midpoint twist, Kids with Guns. Scenes 61 through 67, pages 83 through 86. There is a really powerful use of juxtaposition happening within this scene that we have to talk about. So here we have the culmination of built-up grief, tension, agony, fear, and love that Queen and Slim have lived through, realized in an intense and passionate sex scene. At the same time, we see Junior, the bright-eyed son of the mechanic, en route to a protest to support Queen and Slim. Junior will eventually make the choice to shoot a black police officer in the face, killing him. Mind you, this was not a police officer threatening to take Junior's life. He is actually described on the page as a giant that meant him no harm. The conscious decision by Waith to make him a black officer further speaks to the layers of the controversy depicted. Blackness becomes void with the badge. Why the interspersing of a nightmarish reality with a tender sex scene? To me, it speaks to the idea that Queen and Slim have unwittingly begun a movement that, as of the moment that officer's body hit the pavement, is swiftly becoming far removed from original intention. And they have passionate followers that are willing to kill in their name. But Queen and Slim, the couple themselves, are just two people in love and afraid for their lives. They've become legends without a choice. But, as we will find, they will see the repercussions tenfold. Onward to the climax. The plain famous people get on to die. Scene 92, pages 108 through 110. This is it, the climax. And let me tell you, it's a hard one. One thing I want you to note here that might help with your own script is the importance of differentiating decisions made for the sake of satisfaction and decisions made for the sake of impact. Even though this is not the ending anyone wants, it's necessary, because in order for the impact of the narrative to really hit, Queen and Slim need to die unarmed and unthreatening. It's literally the definition of killing your darlings, people. Think of what we gain. And it's not just the upper hand or bragging rights that we were right about the police. Because despite the beginning and end of this journey, we've had the opportunity to see a full range of law enforcement, and conversely, a full range of black people. Need we mention our black Judas here? We gain a lasting image that solidifies and justifies a movement surrounding necessary change. We get Queen and Slim immortalized. And then we get Act 3. Which I titled, Two Ordinary People That Became Sacrificial Lambs. Up to this point, Queen and Slim have been ultimately nameless to both the reader and the viewer. It isn't until their untimely demise that we are given their true identities in the news coverage displaying their deaths to the nation. Angela Johnson and Ernest Hines. Why is this so effective here? The point of obscurity throughout the duration of the film is to allow the viewer to see themselves in the characters. They could be any one of us, and until they are gone, they remain obscure, nameless, regular people, ultimately unknown to the world at large. 
but in death? We have to put a name to the face. We must provide proof that they were someone, a human being, and we will never forget their name from this point on. That is timely writing, people. If you've listened before, you know about what happens after everything happens. But just in case this is your first time, this is essentially the end after the end. We could end the film with the shocked faces of people looking up at their TV screens with their hopes shattered and fears realized because our heroes didn't make it. But that's jarring, and it doesn't give the audience any sense of how life can and must go on. So how do we move forward? by making Queen and Slim transcendent. Exterior Street, Day 9 Five little black boys run through an apartment complex. They're making their way to a basketball court. As they play, we notice one of the boys is wearing a t-shirt with Queen and Slim's faces on it. And just like that, they've gone from skin and bones to mythical beings that everyone wishes they knew. Heroes that everyone admires and young people will emulate for generations to come. Whether you call them sacrificial lambs, revolutionaries, or just two innocent people that defended themselves, their names will live on forever. But for the purposes of this story, they will always be known as Queen and Slim. Fade to Black. Script to Screen is an original production of The Ride or Die Chicks and is hosted and researched by me, Mercedes K. Milner. My original theme music is by Foosh, and other music featured in today's episode is from Zap Splat and Dave Miles. Don't forget to check the show notes for the links to source articles used for this episode, including articles from O Magazine, Hollywood Reporter, Variety, RogerEbert.com, and our old pal Wikipedia. If you should read nothing else, please check out Jelani Cobb's New Yorker article titled The Powerful Perspective of Queen and Slim. It's mwah, chef's kiss. If you'd like to know what I'll be reading and screening each month, you can visit our website, thewodc.com, to see my curated list of screenplays for the year. You can also check out the Reading on Writing Book Club if you'd like to read the Screenwriting Book of the Month with me as well. For the month of March, join me in reading Phoebe Waller-Bridge's pilot episode for Fleabag and David Mamet's Three Uses of the Knife. Until then, read something, watch something, and write for your life. A Bad Feeling Horror Podcast featuring creepy tales, fires burn, <laughs> and haunting host. Afterlife's a bitch and her name's Marina Longdead. Your favorite ghoul friend, Gulia. Aviv, your eternal night owl. Coming soon. <laughs>